In the last two episodes, we've looked at the environmental impact of sports nutrition and learned that the biggest impact of an athlete's diet on the planet isn't the gels and the drinks and the single-use plastics, but it's actually the day-to-day protein choices with animal sources of protein virtually always worse for the environment in almost every metric that we look at, be it greenhouse gas emissions, land use, water use, or nutrient runoff that causes pollution into waterways. But on the flip side of that, we often hear the message that plant-based protein sources are inferior to animal sources and that recommendations from sports nutritionists and dietitians often emphasize the use of dairy and other animal-based protein foods. So today we'll speak to a researcher who's doing some of the research into animal versus non-animal protein sources. We'll look at where this common belief came from about animal proteins being superior to non-animal proteins how the research has evolved just in the last few years in this area, and what that means for this common nutrition assumption. Has this new research reinforced this idea that animal proteins are superior or actually challenged that idea? Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. Sort of stuff that people are talking about out on their run or ride, in the coffee shop afterwards, or jumping online to try and find answers for. So we'll take that question and break it down, inviting a guest expert in our A episode and an athlete or coach in our B episode to add their perspective as well. Today, it is episode 60, is animal protein superior to plant protein? And our special guest is Dr. Alistair Montaigne from the University of Exeter. But before we get to Alistair, Steph, how are you going this week? I'm going well, Al. I am going well. Pumped up after we saw Matilda's take the win from France, even if it was only a, a friendly friendly match. The atmosphere was awesome. So I'll get to running, and I'm sure our ultra runners would have been watching the Hard Rock 100 where mm. Courtney again came home with the, the win. She came fourth overall. Um, she set the record yet again. So she, she beat that by an hour and four minutes in terms of the previous counterclockwise course record. And she did that while she actually also took a wrong turn late in the, in the course. So and only three weeks after having set the record for Western States, 100 miles. It's insane. That's right. And it's the first time it's ever happened. First time in history, either male or female has broken the record in both the Western States and the Hard Rock in the same year. Exactly. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. Um, otherwise, though, Al, what have you been up to? Uh, what have I been up to? Well, getting ready for the start of the next teaching semester. Just feels like one ends and it rolls straight into the next one. Even the students get a nice break, but we don't in between. Yeah. Um, uh, obviously gearing up for this study that we've talked about over the last few episodes. So any runners based in Melbourne that are interested in doing some research around sort of pre-exercise hydration and doing some running in the heat, uh, you can check out our social media. You'll find the details for it there. And also just trying to finish off the last few topics in our ebook, Steph. So... <laughs> the race to get the last few bits written of that so we can finish the formatting of it and get it ready for getting it out there. 
Yeah, I know. It's a, it's a big job, isn't it, when we do that because are we doing two-year wrap-up there or one year? I've forgotten. Two, two years' worth of podcasts yeah, in yeah. one ebook. Yeah. yeah. It's turned out to be bigger than Ben-Hur, I think. What do we do to ourselves? Oh, geez. Gluttons for punishment. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Mm. But if you have a, a question that you would like answered and that Al and I can write another ebook on, um, please, you can find us on social media at The Long Munch uh, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, but today's episode, our episode number 60. Yep. So our topic is, is animal protein superior to plant protein? I should probably actually say non-animal protein here and we'll get into why there's that distinction shortly. But our special guest is Dr. Alastair Montaigne from the University of Exeter in Southwest England. So Alistair is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Sport and Health Science Department at the University of Exeter. And his PhD research looked at the effect of microprotein, and I'll explain a little bit later on what that is, compared to other protein sources for muscle recovery and the adaptations to exercise. And he's since continued on this line of research in his postdoctoral role as well. And the research team he works with in Exeter have also done some research around pea protein as well. So obviously a plant-based protein source. And so he's well across the research on both animal and non-animal protein sources, or you know, more specifically omnivore and vegan protein sources. And this follows on nicely from our topic of the last couple of episodes where we talked about the environmental impact of sports nutrition and the fact that the animal-based protein sources are probably the most impactful of all the foods that we eat in terms of the environmental impacts. So before we get into this episode and our interview with Alistair, a couple of terms I think we should explain up front because it'll make it easier if you're not familiar with them already. The first one is muscle protein synthesis. So basically our muscles are constantly going through a phase of building up new proteins, breaking down old ones, partly sometimes because they get damaged. So every time we go out and train, we get little bits of micro damage in the muscle fibers. So they have to be repaired after exercise. But then also we have the adaptations to exercise, which is why we train in the first place. It's why we get fitter, healthier, faster, stronger, whatever it is, as a result of our training is because we build new and more abundant proteins of particular types, depending on what the, the training is. And that process of building new proteins is muscle protein synthesis. So you'll hear Alistair refer to that quite a lot throughout this topic because it is something that we can measure from a research point of view and use that to indicate what a certain intervention, either exercise or nutrition or the combination is having in terms of that recovery and adaptation. Uh, the other terms, amino acids, most people will probably be familiar, but basically when we eat foods that contain protein, proteins themselves... Uh, the proteins from plants or animals, we break those down into the individual building blocks, the amino acids, and then we can use those amino, amino acids in our body to build the proteins that we want to build through that protein synthesis process that we just described before. And there are some essential amino acids, ones that our body can't produce or, or produce by recycling old proteins. And then there's the non-essential. So this is the essential that are generally the more important ones and then there is one particular amino acid called leucine, which seems to be particularly important for signaling to the muscle that there's adequate protein there to sort of maximize that protein synthesis or protein synthetic response after a meal where you've 
had protein coming in or after exercise. And then the final term I thought we'd explain here is whole food matrix. And again, Alistair refers to this a bit in this chat. So whole food matrix simply refers to the fact that, you know, we don't eat individual nutrients, we eat foods, and those foods contain a whole bunch of different things. So, you know, different macronutrients, protein, fat, carbohydrate, but also things like fiber, water, and then vitamins and minerals, but then a whole bunch of other stuff that we don't even identify all of it really from a chemical point of view that's in food that may have some influence on how the individual nutrients behave because of this unique combination that they're packaged up in within food and how those things interact in our gut and then potentially in our body as well. So yeah, that's where when we start to talk about different proteins from sort of really isolated protein supplements, whereas where the research kind of started through to actually what is the effect of eating a whole food or a whole meal or a sequence of meals over several days may be a very different response because of this whole food matrix. So we need to factor that in when we interpret this research. Awesome. Let's uh, get stuck into it. Yep, let's do it. Alistair Montaigne, welcome to The Long Munch. How are you going? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Ah, pleasure. Great to have you here. Now, you're a researcher at the University of Exeter, which we're just discussing off air is in that sort of southwest part of the UK. But you have looked at the role of plant-based proteins and particularly microprotein, which comes from fungi, and looking at that in terms of the body's response compared to animal-based proteins. But I guess to start off with, it's a very kind of niche area working with microproteins. So how did you find yourself sort of working in that area specifically? Well, to try and keep it brief, I um, I did my undergraduate at Loughborough University. Mm-hmm. I was really interested in essentially how we could modulate physiology through training and nutrition. So did my undergraduate there. And then when I was doing my dissertation, I was fortunate enough to work a little bit with Lewis James, who I think you've had on the podcast. Yeah. And um, yep. he was very, very generous with his time and his energy. And he got me interested in research. I don't think I've got into research were it not for him. So then mm-hmm. I decided to do a master's at Loughborough University as well in sports nutrition, then decided that I wanted to work in protein metabolism. And then very fortunately, fortunate for me, a PhD position came up down at Exeter. As you say, looking at the utility of microprotein to support human nutrition, particularly from the perspective of anabolism. Um, and that was with Professor Benjamin Wall, Professor Francis Stevens. And yeah, again, I'm very, very fortunate. They were both excellent scientists and both brilliant mentors who have had a huge impact on my life and did a PhD looking at the effect of microprotein on protein synthesis from a very acute perspective through to multiple days through to a longer period of time. So really translating things from a very almost molecular level, a very acute level through to the diet in its entirety, right through to, um, and multiple weeks. So kind of from molecule all the way up to the level of a level of movement. Mm, yeah. And we're going to talk about sort of the evolution of research around protein today. And I think one of the cool things probably for me and Steph, because we're old enough and been around long enough now to have seen kind of the evolution of that over the last probably 15, 20 years. And it's been really interesting to see, you know, you mentioned Benjamin Wall there, obviously one of your supervisors 
and he's sort of that next generation of protein researchers who were working with the the kind of the, the two or three big labs that were doing that, you know, 15 years ago. And we're going to talk about some of that early research shortly, that they've then gone and set up their own labs elsewhere and kind of taken that next step in that protein research, which is what we're looking at today. So it's really cool to kind of see that evolution. And obviously you're now part of that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a very, very good way of putting it as well, I think. Um, mm. So you have kind of that foundational knowledge and then that's been subsequently added to in new quite current areas, such yeah. as alternative protein sources. Mm, yeah. And do you have a particular sort of sporting background or interest yourself? Um, so I grew up in Sheffield in Northern England, which is very, very predominantly football. So mm -hmm. growing up, I played football. Then around 15, 16, started lifting weights and then just done the latter ever since. Yeah. It's probably contributed also to my interest in uh, the scientific literature surrounding that. Yeah, yeah, cool. All right. And before we get into your research specifically, as I said, you know, this has been a, a process of evolution in terms of this research around protein. So I want to go back now almost, you know, two decades probably to a bunch of studies that were done probably in the early and mid 2000s. Yeah, as I said before, you know, Steph and I were just sort of starting our careers around that time. And it was really cool to see that kind of new research coming out of that time. And, and some of that research was comparing animal based proteins. And that was usually whey protein isolating in most of those studies. And it was comparing it primarily from a plant-based perspective, plant -based protein perspective to soy protein isolate. Or sometimes it was whey versus casein, so both animal sources. So they're the, obviously the two different types of or main groups of proteins that you find in dairy milk. But do you want to just kind of briefly summarize the findings that came from these earlier studies and what that kind of meant in terms of recommendations that had been made at that time and and I think to some degree still persist today? Of course. So a lot of studies in that area, but a couple that come to mind. Um, first of all, it'd be a very influential study by Tang in 2009, which came out of Stu Phillips' lab. And as you alluded to, that compared whey, the soy, the casein protein. And they essentially found that um, whey protein produced a greater muscle protein synthetic response, followed by soy protein, followed by casein protein. And that was in relative proportion to the amount of amino acids appearing in the bloodstream that came from the digestion and absorption of those proteins. So whey protein produced the greatest increase in plasma leucine and concentrations, leucine being particularly important for stimulating protein synthesis. And that coincided with the highest protein synthesis. So from that, we developed a hypothesis that um, a more quickly digested and more bioavailable protein would in turn stimulate a greater muscle protein response. That was then in turn then supported by a number of studies, but again, to name one would be a study by Yang, also out of Stu Phillips' lab, where they did a similar study being older individuals. And again, they found that whey was superior to, uh, to soy protein. And again, they ascribed that to a greater a greater increase in amino acid concentrations in the bloodstream. Um, and that was in turn supported by a number of contemporaneous um, training studies where supplemental whey protein or milk protein was given in comparison um, to supplemental soy protein of a light. And again, we found that there was greater lean mass accretion, greater training adaptation in response to the ingestion of that whey protein than that plant-based comparator. Following on from this, and uh, I know you've had Dan Moore on, 
um, and it was also studied by Ollie Wittard as well. They looked at some dose response um, type work as well, and they concluded that around 20 grams of protein was the optimal amount of this. So from a combination of these studies, really, really good data from some incredibly able scientists. We kind of concluded that uh, you wanted around 20 grams of protein, you want 0.3 grams per kilo, something like that. And you wanted it to come ideally from whey protein or perhaps milk protein, something that's rapidly digested, causing a rapid increase in amino acids, which in turn caused a rapid increase in protein. Mm, yeah. And, and I guess, I mean, there's a couple of things with that. Obviously, you can't just rely on milk and whey protein for all your entire protein source, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks. It's just not not going to happen in the real world. So I guess that's where you have to kind of move on and start to look further afield at other protein sources, you know, meat, fish, chicken, and then you know, the other plant-based sources as well. But I'm interested, and I'm not sure if you necessarily know the answer to this, but was there a technical reason why soy was kind of the protein of choice from a plant-based perspective back then? Was it simply that that was an easy one to study or was it just that that was commercially more available or p- more popular at the time? Or was there a specific reason from a research methods point of view that it had to be soy because of some particular reason? I suspect um, a combination of those things. I think, mm-hmm. yes, it was probably the most commercially available and um, Providing an, an isolated protein in these experiments is, is quite convenient as well. Um, you have a lot of methodological considerations. There are real orchestra in timing and um, quite difficult to run these studies. I'm not sure people quite appreciate just how much work a single day of a, an IV tracer study is where you can measure muscle photosynthesis. That's a lot of work. So you want to take quite often particularly in those early days when you were looking at protein sources, per se, you were looking more at the underlying regulation of protein synthesis. You perhaps want to say a reductionist approach such that having something you could drink quite quickly, um, without sort of, um, sort of countering any of those, um, what's the phrase I want, um, underlying assumptions of the method, um, would be the way to go. Um, so they offered the least methodological challenge, um, and not commercially available. And I don't think necessarily a comparison of lots of different protein sources was the intention of much of that, that early work. That's mm. why they went down that method, um, or that route, sorry. So then just to provide a little bit of, um, context, I know I've spoken about IV tracer studies, but just for your listeners, for how these studies are carried out, you'll, you'll essentially get someone in after an open fast. You'll put a cannula in for um, the infusion of a stabilized amino acid. This is just an amino acid that's labeled with a slightly heavier isotope, which means that we can then trace it bloodstream, which blood samples be taken from a further cannula that's often placed in the hand for arterialized blood sampling. So we can trace the stabilized amino acid bloodstream. And also then it's incorporation in tissue, which we take muscle biopsies to determine that. This then in turn allows you to calculate fasted muscle protein synthesis and then subsequently postprandial muscle protein synthesis. Mm. You've got this really um, clinical environment where most of the day, other than maybe a short period of exercise or just to go to the toilet, participants are in a semi-supine position. Yeah, so quite a challenging environment and also not necessarily very free living in that regard. No, and I can't imagine they'd be very pleasant studies to participate in either. No, probably not. A varied response, I'd say. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
so I mean, it sounds like you know, isolated proteins were used because you want to eliminate as many of those other variables as possible. Like you don't want the carbohydrate in a food or the fiber or the fat or anything else kind of interfering with your results when you're trying to drill down to the nitty gritty details of what's actually going on in the blood and those kind of things. Absolutely. Yeah. And as I say, I'm not sure always at that stage, whether something was a whole food or comparing necessarily lots of different protein sources, that was kind of the primary aim of that study. I think that's something that's developed quite organically um, since that time perhaps. But it's certainly the case that we, you know, if you look at those early studies, the vast majority of the work is done in a single plant-based protein, soy protein, and that has formed the core much of the argument surrounding um, plant-based nutrition for maybe, you know, almost 10 years, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And we were discussing off air before, and I, I sort of originally had thought, you know, since probably the early 2010s, but it's probably actually been really since about 2015, it's much more recent than that. There has certainly been a bit of a momentum shift and, and probably we talked about that evolution of research and those generations of researchers in protein. It's probably been that next generation, the ones who were doing their PhDs in that sort of mid to late 2000s, who then went and set up their own labs that then took that next step to explore different types of protein sources. And particularly in terms of plant proteins, you've got pea protein, rice protein, potato protein. Yes, there is, but protein in potatoes, for those who are wondering. Uh, wheat, uh, obviously you've done microprotein. Other researchers have now looked at whole foods rather than isolated protein sources. Some have looked at whole meals. So what's the influence of other factors there? Or you know, as we said with you, your whole eating patterns over a few days. And that includes uh, your interesting research on, on a vegan diet, which we'll get to shortly. So obviously these are much more reflective of the real world. Is that just a natural evolution of, okay, we've answered this question, we're moving on to the next one? Or was there certain technologies that didn't exist back in sort of 2005, 2010 that now exist that were necessary to be able to take that next step? Um, so I'll answer that in two halves because I think kind of that whole food angle and that uh, multiple day free living measurement kind of developed um, pretty exclusively from one another. So first of all, for, to measure that protein synthesis over multiple days, you use a slightly different method. You still use a tracer, but you'd use an oral tracer, um, heavy water, deuterium oxide. And what this allows you to do is you just drink the tracer and you can go about your everyday business. You can get um, a measure of muscle protein synthesis that encompasses free living activity, so habitual contraction, um, circadian rhythm, and really importantly also multiple feeding fasting cycles. So it makes it really nice to either compare different amounts of protein in the diet, or um, in our case, it makes it very, it's very well suited to compare different types of protein within the diet. So it allows you to do that vegan compared to animal or om omnivorous comparison. Um, now that's the, the heavy water is quite an old technique that um, I think out of some analytic um, developments in recent years, and also just a need to answer come at questions from slightly different angle. And that's become much more a tool of choice for people. Mm. As for the whole food side of things, um, I know Luke Van Loon's lab had an interest in that quite a long time ago, but it was really studied by Seth Van Vlee and um, Nick Bird mm. that sort of invigorate that, uh, that whole area. 
And I know Dan Moore talked about this when he came on your podcast. I believe he was involved in that work. Hmm. But it provided either whole eggs or egg white, isonitrogenous, so the same amount of protein. And they expected to see that, I think, a similar protein synthetic response to each. But they saw that the whole egg stimulated a greater muscle protein synthetic response, which was unexpected. And that in turn um, led them to postulate that perhaps there were other things in whole foods that might potentiate the anabolic response, that increase in protein synthesis feeding, and other than just the amino acid, so amino acid dependence effects. And that has subsequently um, got people thinking about this whole food idea, and there's been a, f- a few studies subsequently that have looked at that, some which support that concept and some which perhaps don't. So I think those two lines of thinking have developed quite independently from each other, but they've certainly informed a more ecologically valid perspective on just how what we eat influence protein synthesis and in terms how it might influence adaptation to training and things like that. Yeah, yeah, cool. And it obviously hopes us, hopefully gets us to either confirm, you know, those previous recommendations that were based on those very kind of clinical isolated protein studies that don't reflect the real world or to say, hang on a minute, maybe that information is not as valid as we first thought. I mean, from a mechanistic point of view, it's fine, but what that actually means to recommend to athletes, maybe that needs to change. So I guess we'll talk about that now in terms of, you know, the work that you and and others have done in the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, it was just happenstance to a degree. I think much of our knowledge about the regulation of protein synthesis developed without actually looking at whole foods and whole meals. And even now we've got a real, real dirt of information looking at whole meals. Most of what we know does come from those isolated protein sources, which, um, as you alluded to, don't have much carbohydrate and don't have much fat, are largely free of a whole food matrix. So it's quite a, quite a unique context with which to ingest protein, which might be quite far away from what people eat on an everyday basis, especially when you know, a mixed meal where you've got multiple food, food matrices, multiple macronutrients, and also a much larger amount of energy. And we don't, re- we still don't really understand. I don't think how those interactions might in turn, but, um, also protein synthesis. And so let's look more specifically now at plant-based proteins. So in the past, there's been this common consensus that plant proteins are inferior to animal proteins and you need to eat much more of them to get the same benefit. So what were the concerns with plant proteins? Well, for a start, there is that direct evidence for soy protein, which, you know, it's been shown um, really high quality data that soy protein does stimulate a lesser muscle protein synthetic response. So that certainly in and of itself adds to those concerns. But, um, alongside that, you generally have lower, um, protein content in plant-based proteins. That protein content usually has a lower proportion of essential amino acids, and they're usually slightly lower in leucine as well. And, um, leucine particularly important for stimulating muscle protein synthesis. It is essentially the, the trigger to kickstart that, that process. Now, alongside this, um, slightly less favorable amino acid composition and less favorable protein content. Um, a lot of plant-based foods are also suggested to be deficient in one or more amino acids. Um, so for example, pea protein is particularly low in methionine, 
which has in turn been suggested to um, perhaps impair that muscle protein synthetic response. Um, although there's not a great deal of evidence for that. And um, yeah, we'll probably come on to that a little bit later. That's not, not necessarily what we're actually seeing um, from our data. Then furthermore, a lot of plant-based proteins in their unrefined state have anti-nutritional factors that might make them a little bit less bioavailable in circulation, but less, less amino acids become presented to muscle tissue. And therefore you're getting that lower amino acid, amino acidemic response, which might in turn impair um, muscle protein synthesis rates. So there's, the, there's a number of layers to it. Mm. So I was going to say, so that when you say those anti-nutritional factors, they're things like types of fiber in plant-based foods are going to sort of bind to some of those proteins or amino acids and stop them actually being absorbed into the blood. So they're just going to pass through. Exactly. So yeah, yeah. it's important that we do make that distinction though, between um, refined or isolated plant-based protein sources and so a lot of the plant-based sources that we eat. Um, and that'll be important when we, we come on to discuss some of the plant-based sources we've now got evidence for, which are essentially isolated protein sources. Yeah, so um, in the last five or 10 years, we've seen quite a few studies now come through that look at different plant proteins other than just soy. So if we start with the isolated protein studies and those short-term effects, are these other plant proteins like pea, rice, potato, wheat, corn, mycoprotein, still proving inferior to animal proteins? In short, no. So to start with looking at plant-based protein sources, because that's also perhaps an important distinction to make, you, we tend to think of animal and plant-based sources, but there are quite a few non-animal derived protein sources, which aren't plant-based either. But on the plant-based um, protein side of things, data that's come out of Lou Van Loon's lab, led by Philippe Pinker, so I apologize, I probably just absolutely butchered his surname there. <laughs> but um, they've looked at a number of plant-based protein sources now, provided 30 grams of protein. They've compared wheat, corn protein, and potato protein, and they've seen parity in muscle protein synthesis with those three sources and then milk protein. Then from our lab, we... We ran a study a few years ago where we compared microprotein and milk protein. Now microprotein, although we gave it in its freeze-dried format, isn't an isolated protein source. It's around 45% um, protein in its, in its dry, dry form, and it is surrounded by a whole food matrix. So you could certainly make the argument that we're talking about whole food in that case. And we saw parity between um, microprotein and milk protein when we matched on leucine content very slightly higher protein content in the, uh, in the microprotein beverage. Subsequently, and I was at a conference last week where some of this data was presented from our lab. First of all, we showed that pea protein stimulated, um, an equivalent muscle protein synthetic response to that of microprotein. Now we've shown previously that microprotein produced a very similar muscle protein synthetic response to milk. So we can assume that pea protein perhaps also stimulated a very similar muscle protein synthetic response to milk. That was presented last week by um, my colleague, Sam West. And then we also um, presented some data led by Eno van der Heiden, where he showed that algal protein, so spirulina and chlorella, stimulated an equivalent muscle protein synthetic response to microprotein. 
So again, it might be that they're stimulating a similar response to that milk protein. If we're assuming microprotein and milk protein are similar, are they just? So we've now got a number of different protein sources, both plant-based and other non-animal derived protein sources, fungal and algal, where we just, we're seeing parity in muscle protein synthetic responses when you feed 25 to 30 grams. Do those findings change at all when you look at whole foods rather than isolated protein supplements? Well, to be honest, we don't have enough data, I don't think, to say that. But, um, and there's a little bit of disagreement perhaps within the data that we do have. So as mentioned, and it's not necessarily plant-based, but we have that study from Stefan Lambley and Nick Burst, where we're, we see, we are seeing a whole food effect from the whole egg and subsequently in my own work, when we compared microprotein to milk protein, there is also that suggestion of a whole food effect. If anything in that study, microprotein stimulated a slightly greater response than that of milk protein. So there's a suggestion of a whole food effect there. But then subsequently we ran a study again by, which is led by my colleague Sam West, where he compared microprotein to, um, Another microprotein beverage where essentially its whole food matrix was disrupted or removed. And we didn't see any differences between those two, suggesting that there wasn't a whole food effect, a whole food potentiation from that microprotein beverage alone. And then also subsequently, um, Nick Bird's lab and I think this was led by Paulson. They did a study where they compared salmon to an analog of salmon where there were much of the same nutrients, but it wasn't in a whole food matrix. And again, they didn't see that salmon produced a greater muscle protein synthetic response, which suggests again, there wasn't a whole food effect. So in terms of the, the consistency of this whole food effect and exactly what is driving it across a, a variety of contexts, we're not quite there yet. It's, uh, it's certainly been suggested, but, um, we need a lot more research to, to understand that fully, I think. Mm. And it's interesting, you're talking before about those kind of anti-nutritional factors in some of those plant-based proteins, and you think particularly things like the legumes, you know, your chickpeas and lentils and beans and those sorts of things where there is a, you know, a significant fiber content in them, for example, and you sort of think, well, yeah, but again, you don't eat beans on their own necessarily. And if you're eating, I don't know, steak or chicken, you're usually eating that with some sort of vegetables or pasta or rice or something where you're possibly getting those anti-nutrition factors from the other things that you're eating alongside the meat. So even comparing steak to lentils, even if you see a difference, doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be a difference when you put that steak on a plate with a whole bunch of vegetables and grains and things. It's a really good point. I mean, most of the time, most of us are actually eating pr protein blends at most mm. meals. We're having a combination of animal and plant-based proteins. And when you look at diet diaries, much more protein does come from plant-based sources than we perhaps expect anyway. So, um, yeah, most of the time we are eating those mixed meals with mixed, mixed sources of protein. Mm. Mm. Yep. And so let's look at your research a bit more now, which is focused on mycoprotein specifically. So for those that aren't too aware, can you explain in a little bit more detail what mycoprotein is? and how we would eat it in foods or supplements and how it compares to other um, plant and animal um, protein sources. Of course. So um, microprotein is a fungal-derived protein source. I think it's most similar sort of taxonomically to 
the truffles. And its development came in the 60s where a British industrialist called Lord Rank, who owned a big sort of food production company, quite ahead of his time, I suppose, he wanted to find a way to feed an increasing wealth population. He decided that the way in which to do so would be via continuous fermentation of, um, of a microfungus. So he, he went about trying to find the right microfungus for the job, which it found in a garden in uh, Buckinghamshire in England, and then started producing it, looking out to produce it on an industrial scale. So you take a very, very small amount of this microfungus, you essentially feed it carbohydrates and very sort of, to succinctly describe the process, it internal produces protein in a quite sustainable manner. This product is then further processed and they can be frozen to produce a product that um, resembles a meat-like texture. And that's sold in the UK under, um, under Quorn Foods, so a range of different meat replacement products. Um, but microprotein can be produced by anyone now, I believe, in the patent, certainly in the UK, is run out. So um, I don't know if any has been produced um, in Australia. We have corn here, but I'm not sure whether it, I haven't actually looked, Steph, whether it's produced here or it comes from the UK. Yeah, Obviously the same sure. company. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, it's fungal derived protein source, quite unique in that it's relatively high protein around 45% in its dry weight, around 15% in its wet weight. It's also really high in fiber, a mixture of beta-glucan and chitin, relatively rich in essential amino acids, around 45% of its protein content. Again, it's um, essential amino acids and it's relatively rich in leucine as well. It's, um, it's not necessarily remarkable compared to other plant-based sources in that regard, but it does compare relatively well. It's um, a, complete, a complete source of uh, essential amino acids relatively rich in, in protein and also comes alongside that fiber as well, which may in turn provide benefits to health. Yep. And your most recent study has looked specifically at vegan versus omnivore eating patterns and muscle protein synthesis across three days. What did you find in this study? Yeah. So just to provide that little bit of background, we, we initially just looked at the response to a single feeding of microprotein and we compared it to milk protein, essentially using milk protein as a gold standard comparator. Um, and we saw that microprotein stimulated protein synthesis to the same extent, if not a little bit more than milk protein. So in turn, we then wanted to see if we had a microprotein rich vegan diet, um, could we show proof of concept that, um, a vegan diet with a high quality protein component could stimulate daily muscle protein synthesis to the same extent as an omnivorous diet. So we designed the study in two phases. So initially we provided either a microprotein rich vegan diet or an omnivorous diet, both groups getting the same amount of protein, 1.8 grams per kilo per day. And we measured muscle protein synthesis over three day period in both rested and exercise tissue. And we found that daily muscle protein synthesis rates were the same in each group. So that high protein vegan condition stimulated the same response and also supported the same response, I should say, as that um, high protein omnivorous condition. Subsequently, participants then continued either on a high protein, microprotein rich vegan diet or a high protein omnivorous diet for a period of 10 weeks, whilst also completing um, some progressive resistance exercise 
So really challenging resistance training five times a week, trying to just sort of tax muscle hypertrophy as much as was possible. During this time, we took multiple measures of muscle size. So concurrent measures where we looked at whole body lean mass, the effects there. We looked at individual limbs and individual muscles via MRI scans. And then we looked at individual muscle fibers via muscle biopsy. So we've got three really nice gold standard comparisons for changes in muscle size. And we also took muscle strength before and afterwards. And in any of those measures, we, we saw the same adaptive response in response to that high protein, micro protein, rich vegan diet, as we did that high protein, nibrous diet. So we see the same resistance training adaptation, that same accrual of lead mass in both conditions. So we have proof of concept initially, high protein, vegan diet can support equivalent daily muscle protein synthesis rates. And in turn, that is translated to equivalent resistance training adaptation over time. Mm. So you know how we get this message about leucine and we need, like we kind of want to get three grams of leucine usually in a hit of protein. What do you think of that message in terms of, you know, your research and with the mycoprotein? Because with the mycoprotein, are you getting that three grams of leucine in a hit of the meals? Well, for a start, it depends on what you eat of it, um, mm. but not necessarily. I think um, usually we take between two and three grams of leucine. I don't think we quite know mm. exactly where the threshold for ingested leucine might be, mm. if there is one. Yep. I think some of the messaging around leucine and the proportionality between leucine in the bloodstream and subsequent muscle protein synthesis might need to re-examine that in years to come. Mm. There's multiple cases now where we're just not seeing that proportionality between the two. Mm. We're seeing that um, lower amino acid responses, so lower concentrations of amino acids in the bloodstream, lower concentrations, leucine in the bloodstream, are producing very similar subsequent muscle protein responses. Mm. And this is nicely shown in, in a great deal of that animal, the plant work, but also in a study by um, Chan in 2019, they deliberately modulated the digestion kinetics of um, milk protein such that one produced a much more rapid amino acid, amino acidemic response compared to one that produced a much lesser amino acidemic response. And they saw equivalent muscle protein synthesis. So the, the exact role, undoubtedly leucine is important in subsequent muscle protein synthesis, but the exact extent to which you need to elevate plasma leucine the drive muscle protein synthesis. Yeah, it's, it's perhaps not as clear as we once thought, I would suggest. Okay, so putting all of this together, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things, I guess, that stand out to me. One, as we said earlier, clearly no one is going to live on just microprotein or just chicken or just anything in terms of their protein sources. They're going to have a mixture of that, not only across the day, but as you said, at meals as well. They're not usually getting just one source of protein at those meals. And I guess, we see this in other areas of sports nutrition as well. You know, hydration is another one where, you know, you can look at the beverage hydration index. And if you look at individual beverages in isolation, you can see differences and you might say milk and high electrolytes or clinical rehydration solutions are superior. But as soon as you add food into the mix, there's no difference to water. It kind of feels like to me, this is another area where, you know, it doesn't matter what the type of protein is, by the time it goes into meals and meal patterns, 
any differences that you're measuring at that really reductionist research kind of tend to wash out over time. And probably we don't have enough research to say that for sure. But do you feel that's kind of where we're heading at the moment? Perhaps so, yeah. I think a lot of the, the small differences we see is a, it's a largely academic preoccupation. Um, <laughs> I think in terms of usable advice, I don't think that much has changed. Um, I think you want to aim to have a high quality protein component of, especially if you're an athlete of every meal, athletes are looking to, you know, aren't just looking for, um, an adequacy of nutrients They're looking to optimize that process. So I think you want to select a high quality protein component in each meal, select something which there is direct research for. Yes. Yeah, so I, I don't think that's changed. You want to have an adequacy in terms of an amount and you want to select a high quality protein source. And as you mentioned, we, we need a lot more research in terms of our understanding of meals and how that washes out this time. That was a very, a very caveated answer, um, sitting on the fence there, <laughs> but, uh, Yes, high, yeah. quali high quality component and eat enough of it. Yeah, and I guess that the message that's starting to emerge over the last few years is that high quality doesn't exclusively have to be animal sources of protein. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, cool. And then the other thing, just listening to some of the, you know, those big names in protein research, the Stu Phillips you've obviously mentioned a few times, the Luke Van Loons, I guess one of the things that really stands out to me in, in listening to them talk about this over the last, probably 10 years or so is that that message has sort of certainly you know it used to be about you know having this much of this sort of protein that you know this many hours apart to optimize synthesis and now they're just like oh if you get enough protein over the day those things don't really matter that much do you kind of get that vibe as well i'm not going to be the one on the podcast to um, <laughs> contradict luke, luke van leeuwen or steve phillips um, yeah. no i think that's that's excellent good sense mm. um, that's the place I think anyone should start is making sure you're getting enough protein, um, across the day. Um, there might then be slight benefits to, uh, distribution of protein, especially if you're an athlete, you know, training perhaps multiple times a day, you might want to think about how you distribute that, that protein for training adaptation, but also just for your, your own GI comfort, for example. And mm -hmm. um, but no, the place to start is just definitely getting an adequacy of protein through the day. And at least some of that needs to come from those high quality protein sources. Yep. yep. Cool. One other thing we haven't really touched on so far in this podcast, obviously this is a podcast for runners, cyclists, and triathletes. A lot of this research and, and your own research has been done in resistant training. So, you know, lifting weights and looking at sort of muscle hypertrophy, which is obviously one type of adaptation, but not necessarily the type of adaptation that endurance athletes are necessarily looking for. We did discuss this with Dan Moore, uh, it was probably a couple of years ago now on the podcast, and he mentioned at that time that certainly a lot of the, the findings we have in this research, when we do look or kind of replicate similar types of studies, but endurance exercise rather than resistance training, we kind of see more or less the same conclusions come out of that research. Obviously, we don't necessarily have that from this newer research around the different types of plant proteins or the sort of looking at meal patterns rather than isolated protein. But I mean, it seems to me it wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't expect it to change. I mean, you don't know until you do the studies, but do you have any inkling that that would be any different to the earlier studies where the, the findings from resistance exercise translate pretty well to endurance exercise? 
I don't see any reason why, why it wouldn't translate. I think in terms of what you're looking for post-endurance exercise, post-endurance training is much the same. You need protein to, first of all, repair some of that muscle damage, perhaps, especially if you've been doing something quite high impact, like running, you're also going to need it an adequacy of the amino acids to drive the synthesis of new proteins that are going to allow you to, to adapt and get better. Um, and equally so unique to endurance exercise is you're also going to need to replace some of those amino acids that you've oxidized during that exercise, particularly the branch chain amino acids. Now, plant-based proteins tend to be a little bit lower in branch chain amino acids. So that might be something that endurance athletes who are following a plant-based diet might want to pay attention to. I don't, don't necessarily think you'd need to supplement with branch chain amino acids in most cases, but you might want to consume a little bit more protein to account for that. I think the only other area where there might need to be a more, a more strategic approach is some of the plant-based sources might reduce a little bit more GI discomfort just because they do come with that kind of fiber load as well. There might need to be a strategic approach for when you are having certain meals relative to your training. And that might be where the, the use of a, an easily digestive palatable supplement might be, uh, might be useful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And so just thinking in terms of unanswered questions in this area, it sounds like there's still a few, but what are the kind of the key one or two that stand out to you that these are the things that we still don't know and would be really useful to find out? To start with, there's, there, are, there are those questions about the regulation of protein synthesis in general. I know we spoke a little bit about how important leucine might be across a variety of contexts, particularly when we start looking at meals. That's something I'd certainly like to see more research on. Probably a bit spe specific for here, but personally, I'd like to see research in that area. Next, I think it's just the consistency of that whole food effect. We think we need to find out if that's consistent across a range of whole foods compared to non-whole foods. And then in turn, what's driving that? Because presumably there are things in some whole foods which might drive that potentiation. And equally so, there are things in other whole foods which perhaps might not. We need to disentangle the food matrices from just nutrient density in that regard as well, I think. And then we've spoken, spoken about a few times in the last hour or so, but just meals as well. We, most of our knowledge has uh, developed not in incorporating sort of energy dense meals where you have a slightly larger amount of calories, make macronutrients, etc. So I think we need to start perhaps looking at at meals and I'd also like to see more of those multiple day studies using heavy water tracers and um, perhaps looking at different amounts of protein for example were we to feed a lower amount of protein would we see a difference between a vegan and an omnivorous diet were we not to give micro protein and were we to give another source would we start would we see a difference and um, then I would say I would suggest that the data at the moment says we would not see a difference, but uh, then that probably needs to be empirically tested. Yep. Yep. Makes perfect sense. All right. And to wrap all of that up, I guess, for the listeners at, who, are, who are on the podcast at the moment going, you know, what does it, this all mean for me? Maybe I'm a, 
you know, following a vegan diet already and I want to know whether that's going to compromise me in any way or maybe I'm considering switching to a plant-based diet. Obviously, our last episode was around the environmental impact and we talked about that's one of the biggest things you can do to improve your environmental impact from a nutrition point of view is to reduce the amount of animal protein sources that you eat, the portion sizes or the frequency of, of eating those. And then there may be like, well, am I going to lose anything by switching? What's, I mean, obviously we don't have a full picture yet. We haven't done all that research, but what's your your best guess or hypothesis around that? Do you think people uh, would be potentially losing out by doing that or do you think they'll be just fine? I think probably just fine. Again, put that, do a very scientist type thing and put some heavy caveats on mm. there. Um, as long as you're consuming the adequacy of protein, probably for endurance athletes or resistance trained athletes alike, 1.6 grams per kilo or above. If you are at all concerned on a plant-based diet that you, you may be missing out on a little bit of protein quality, you can always consume slightly more. I think 10, 15 cents often suggested um, by others in the field. Have an adequacy of protein throughout the day. Have an adequacy of protein around 0.3 grams per kilo each meal and make sure at least some of that protein is from high quality protein sources, which have empirical evidence for them. Perhaps also consider a protein supplement if that's convenient and can be used to maximize your number of feeding opportunities to in turn maximize adaptation. Yep. Awesome. All right, well, to finish up with, I'm going to hand it back to Steph, and she's going to finish us off with the bonus round where we find out a little bit more about you rather than protein synthesis and mycoprotein. First off, do you have mycoprotein for breakfast, lunch, and tea? Um, no, I have it occasionally, but uh, certainly not on a daily basis, maybe weekly. <laughs> I'll add to that, Steph. I mean, obviously, you've you've researched with microprotein, and some people will have eaten corn before, but maybe you know one specific product. But what have you found are the the most appetizing or the mm. your favourite kind of microprotein meals or ways to have microprotein? You're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> um, I quite like um, they do a product that is like chicken type pieces, sort of little cubes of kind of. To mimic chicken. I'm a big fan of those. You can take on other flavors very well, give quite a lot of volume to, uh, to a meal. And as someone who's always hungry, that's always desirable. Um, <laughs> so that's probably in terms of what I have myself most often, probably have the chicken pieces. Perhaps. Yeah. And a little bit more serious now. So one of the things on your bucket list, you haven't yet done. So it's, it's quite niche and I might have to provide some explanation here, but, um, any mountain above 3,000 feet in Scotland is called a Munro, and I'd quite like to climb all the Munros, about 280 of them. I think I've done about four or five, so I've got a long way to go. But in terms of bucket list before I kick the bucket, that's probably what I'd go for. So conquer the 280, did you say? Yep. yep, exactly. Nice. All right. You might have to pick up on four. Yes, I probably need to get cracking. Did you say you've done four? Yep. Around four, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Might have to go be, start becoming four a month yep. from yeah. here on in. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. I'm quite a long way from Scotland. That's the major barrier. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Is there a sport you've always wanted to try but you haven't yet had the chance? Not really a sport, but I'd quite like to try some sea kayaking. 
yep. around the coast of the UK or maybe Scandinavia. Yeah, nice. Yep. That's a sport, I'd say. Um, sporting event you've most or you're most looking forward to in 2023 if it's not already happening right now, like the tour? It's not the tour, but it is happening right now. So I always look forward to Wimbledon. I always look forward to um, the British Open golf and also just to the football season as well. Yep. So a few sports there. Yeah, nice. And do you live by any particular advice or motto? So at risk of being very, very cliched, I think just to remind yourself that life is about doing better next time and also that just treat people how you would like to be treated yourself. They're probably two things I remind myself of most of. Yeah. Good one. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Alistair. It's been great to chat to you and find out a little bit more about this kind of recent research around plant versus animal protein sources. You got more stuff in the works in that area, like you're continuing to work in that area? Um, so moved a little bit towards more kind of the energy intake side of things, but mm -hmm. uh, involved in a lot of projects within our research group that are very much working in this area. So awesome. um, should be some really, really good studies coming out in the next couple of years. They really add to that literature base. Nice, nice, excellent. All right, well, we'll certainly look forward to hearing from those and seeing that the work that you do into the future. And thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you again for having me. That was great. Thank you very much, Alastair. Uh, and I'll hand it over to the one and only now to, to summarise those key messages. Cool. So our question today was, is animal protein superior to non-animal or plant-based proteins. And as I said, we need to think about that as non-animal proteins in that environmental context, but also in terms of the fact that we do have algal and mycoprotein that comes technically not from plants, comes from algae and, and fungi as well. Now, much of the recommendations, I guess, that we have around protein and the different types of proteins and whether one is better than another as Alistair said, really comes from those early studies that compared individual proteins in isolation. And the majority of those, the plant source was almost always soy protein isolate. Um, and there's probably a couple of reasons for that. As Alistair said, you know, it was pretty much the only commercially available sort of plant-based protein supplement on the market at that time. So it made sense that, that that would be the thing that was studied. But also, you know, there were there was more interest back then in terms of trying to figure out the mechanisms that would regulate protein synthesis in the body rather than, you know, specific head-to-head -head comparisons of different types of proteins or protein sources. But I think a lot of that was kind of largely lost in translation because people would see the headlines of, you know, comparison of whey versus soy protein or milk versus soy protein and go, oh, you know, whey one in a head-to-head -head comparison or something like that. But as Alistair said, that wasn't really the purpose of those studies in the first place. They were just trying to figure out, you know, if we give more essential amino acids or more leucine or a faster digesting protein, what is that going to do? within the body rather than saying this protein is better than that protein or this food is better than that food. But in the last five years or so, there really has been an increase in the comparison of other non-animal protein sources. So we've talked about things like wheat, corn, rice, pea, potato, and microprotein as protein sources that have been studied now, where the same amount of protein, if you give the same amount of protein in most of these cases, 
versus milk protein, you actually see a pretty similar effect overall in terms of protein synthesis. And remembering that some of these are coming from real foods rather than supplements, but often they are just the isolated part of the protein, so it doesn't include the rest of that food matrix. Now, remember, though, that protein is rarely eaten in isolation, unless you're a bodybuilder who just has you know five protein shakes a day or something like that. But as runners, cyclists, and triathletes, obviously, we need a variety of nutrients at our meals and snacks for a range of different reasons. Sometimes it's about refueling from a carbohydrate perspective. It's because we have high overall energy needs because of the volume of training. And that needs to be met not only from protein, but from fat and carbohydrate. We need to get adequate but not excessive fiber intake. And we've talked about that on the podcast before. We need vitamins and minerals. And of course, we can't forget the enjoyment of food and the role that it plays in culture and in society. And life would be pretty miserable if we were just eating whey protein isolate five times a day as our sources of protein. So clearly, that's not going to happen in the real world. But that's kind of what that early research sort of did because it was very mechanistic and very reductionist by necessity. So we need to think about not only comparisons of isolated protein sources, but what happens when they are put into a meal and combined with other foods. Now, there hasn't been a lot of research in this, but the research that has been done so far suggests that individual whole foods, so just you know beef or just eggs or just milk or just microprotein have pretty similar effects or sometimes even slightly superior effects to their isolated proteins when the same amount of protein is given. And we mentioned the egg white versus whole egg example there. And there has been similar studies, as Alistair mentioned, with salmon and and his work with microprotein by removing the whole food matrix or not. You don't really see much of a difference in terms of that response. Now, there are very few studies that have looked at whole meals. So not just having the microprotein or just having the eggs, but actually combining that with all the other foods on the plate that you would eat in a meal, either as a one-off meal or as a pattern of eating over several days or even weeks. But this is where you know any differences due to those kind of anti-nutritional factors that Alistair mentioned, particularly in the plant-based protein sources, those differences actually may become less relevant as the animal proteins will be eaten together alongside plant-based foods in a meal or in a a pattern of eating. You know, you just don't eat a steak on its own for dinner. You eat it with vegetables and maybe some pasta or rice or bread or potatoes or whatever it is. So there is going to be that plant whole food matrix introduced into that animal protein source there. Now, the limited studies that have been done like Alistair's either over a few days or a few weeks, show basically that the type of protein makes almost no difference, provided that the overall amount of protein consumed is adequate. And when we say adequate, probably more than about 1.6 grams of protein per kilo of body weight per day, and preferably you know, re- relatively even, evenly distributed. So sort of 0.3 to 0.4 grams of protein per kilo of body weight per meal or snack across sort of three to five meals or snacks in the day. And that works out to be about 20 to 30 grams of protein, depending on which end of that range you go. And obviously, you know, body size, body weight, etc. So coming back to that question, is animal protein superior to plant protein? The answer is maybe sometimes when it's consumed in isolation, or in inadequate amounts, but otherwise, probably not. And actually, you know, your plant or your non-animal protein sources seem to be just as good. And so this gives us confidence that we don't have to make a compromise between 
optimizing recovery with protein, but also reducing our environmental impact at the same time. So even if you accept that there might be a need for slightly more protein from plant sources, the amount of extra protein required is often quoted, and and Alistair mentioned this as, you know, sort of an extra 10 or 15% of protein, which sounds like, oh, you've got to eat a lot more protein. But when you put that into context, an extra 15% on top of 20 grams of protein is only an extra three grams of protein. You're going from 20 to 23 grams of protein. It's just such a tiny difference that it really probably doesn't matter and it's not going to be unrealistic or difficult to achieve at all. So finally, you know, what does an adequate protein serve from different types of meals look like? And I say meals because, as Alistair mentioned, you're often getting protein from multiple foods on your plate, whether you realize that or not. So I thought what we'd do to just to finish up with is do a bit of a comparison with some animal and some non-animal protein sources, how much of the food you would have to eat to get that sort of recommended amount of protein and what that translates to from a portion size perspective, but also a cost perspective. So I had a a bit of a look just on the local supermarket websites here to get a bit of a comparison. So these are all in Australian dollars. So in terms of that sort of 20, 22 grams of protein, if you were to get that from meat, fish or chicken, so starting off with the animal sources, you probably need about 100 grams worth of those, which is actually a really small portion. It's it's about the size of a deck of playing cards. And most people don't realize that's actually all the the meat, fish, or chicken you need in a single meal to get that kind of protein serve. Now that, depending on what you buy, if you buy chicken breast, for example, here at the moment in Melbourne, that will cost you about $1.70 a serve to get that amount of chicken breast. Obviously, if it's something like salmon or steak, it could be three or four times more than that, depending on what cut you get and, and that sort of thing. But then if we start to look at some of the alternatives, you can look at some of the plant-based alternatives to meat. So you can get things like the plant-based mints or plant-based burgers. So there's a whole bunch of different brands certainly available here in Melbourne. V2 is a brand that's made here in Australia. That seems to be one of the cheaper ones that I've found. Or there's other brands like Beyond, which is imported from Canada or Impossible, which I can't remember where that one's from. But if you look at the comparisons from a nutritional point of view, they actually have the same protein content as beef mints. And so you need about 120 grams of either beef mints or plant-based mints to get your 20 grams of protein. The interesting thing too with those plant-based meat alternatives is they are actually fortified with iron, zinc and vitamin B12. They actually give you your entire daily requirement for vitamin B12 in like one of those plant-based burgers. So for the, the vegans out there that are worried about, you know, having to supplement with B12, this will actually get you there in terms of fortification as well. Now, in terms of cost, those V2, the V2 mints, about 120 grams will set you back 90 cents. And the beef mints is about $1.70 for the same amount. So it's actually slightly cheaper as well. Now, if we look at some of the other examples that a lot of vegan athletes might eat would be things like legumes. And this is one where, yeah, often you do need to eat a reasonably large portion size to get that 20 grams of protein. But again, you're not eating usually legumes in isolation. So you can have the legumes plus other foods on your plate that are going to top up that protein as well. So for example, you could have three quarters of a cup of lentils when they're drained and one and a half cups of cooked pasta or quinoa or something, that combination would actually give you about 21 grams of protein. And almost half of that is coming from the pasta or the quinoa itself. It's not coming from the legumes. That amount of lentils or chickpeas cost you about 70 cents plus, you know, probably a little bit less than that for the pasta. So again, cost-wise is pretty comparable. 
If you're looking at something like tofu, about 150 grams of tofu will give you 18 grams of protein. So probably not quite to that 20 gram mark. But by the time you combine that with other foods, you're not going to eat tofu on its own. You're probably going to get to that 20 grams pretty comfortably. And that's about a dollar a serve. And then the microprotein that obviously Alistair talked about, because that was his area of research, about 120 grams of protein. Again, very similar to tofu, it gives you about 18 grams of protein. And by the time you top that up with other foods on your plate, you're going to get over that sort of 20-ish grams of protein. And the microprotein certainly here in Australia is a little bit more expensive because it is imported from the UK. I went back and had a look at that so that it would be about $2 a serve for that. Now, microprotein, Alistair obviously talked briefly about what it is, but it, yeah, in, a, in a bit more detail, it is a, a type of protein substance produced by a naturally occurring fungus called Fusarium venenatum. And to create microprotein, basically the fungal spores are fermented along with glucose and other nutrients, and it produces this kind of doughy mixture that has a meat-like texture that's high in both protein and fiber. And as Alistair said, they can then freeze-dry it and then mold it into different shapes so that it improves the, the freeze-drying, improves the texture of it to make it more meat or chicken-like, I suppose. So some microprotein products contain a small amount of egg or milk protein to help with the texture and sort of hold it together. So they're technically not completely vegan, but some of the products are. So it just depends on which one you're buying. So if you're worried about that, you obviously you can check the, the labels and the ingredient list. And it can be shaped into a variety of forms, things like you can have it as mince, you can have it as burger patties, you can have strips that kind of look like chicken tenders, and you can have the cubes that Alistair mentioned that kind of resemble diced chicken that you can put into stir fries and curries and things like that. And as he said, it's marketed under the brand name of Corn, which is the um, owned by the company that had the original patent on microprotein, and that's sold in you know, multiple countries throughout the world, including here in Australia, the US, obviously the UK, where it's from originally. But as Alistair said, that patent has now expired. So I'm not sure if there are other companies elsewhere in the world that are now producing microprotein products. I, I haven't seen them here, but they may exist elsewhere. Now, one of the things that we've touched on in previous episodes, I guess, when we're looking at plant-based protein sources and vegan diets is to be aware of the fiber content potentially in some of these protein sources that might be a downside to switching from animal to non-animal protein sources. So for example, that serve of lentils I mentioned before with the pasta would give you 12 grams of fiber all up. So it's not a massive amount, but it's certainly larger than what it might have otherwise been, depending on what meal you had. Uh, that amount of tofu that I mentioned before would give you about five grams of fiber. The plant-based mince, six grams. The microprotein, nine grams of fiber there. So if high fiber is a concern, you can certainly combine that with the rest of the foods on your plate, you know, choosing lower fiber grain options. So white rice versus brown rice, that sort of thing. But you certainly don't have to eat excessive amounts of fiber just to get in the necessary amount of protein from plant or non-animal sources. So that's, I think, one of those preconceived ideas that we can sort of put to rest here is that, you know, you don't have to eat massively excessive amounts of those and they don't have to come with a massive amount of fiber if you're careful with how you plan it. I guess one of the other things that, that people may be concerned about is, well, how do I get that protein in if I don't want the carbs to come along with that? Because often those foods contain both. And that will vary depending on the, the protein source you choose. So, you know, tofu doesn't really have any carbohydrate in it. Microprotein is also very low, about 1.5 grams for that serve. Plant-based mince is only about 7 grams of carbohydrate as well. 
But then if you take the other example of the legumes plus the cooked pasta, you're up to sort of 70 grams of carbohydrate. So it is going to be horses for courses. And particularly if you're reliant on legumes as your main source of protein at, at you know lunch and dinner, you are going to get a lot of carbohydrate and a lot of fiber along with that protein. But by using some of these other sources, your tofus, your tempehs, your microproteins, your plant-based alternatives to meat, you can certainly get around those issues now as well. Now, plant milks, we didn't really discuss in this episode, but they vary dramatically in their protein content. So you do need to keep this in mind when you're looking at alternatives to cow's milk as a source of protein. So soy milk is fairly comparable, almost exactly the same sort of protein content around sort of three to three and a half grams of protein per 100 mils of either. But then you look at the other plant-based milks and they're much lower. So oat milk is about a third. It's only around one gram per 100 mils, and some brands are even less than that. Almond milk, coconut milk, rice milk are all very low in protein, all less than about 0.7 grams per 100 mils. So your chocolate oat milk, for example, is not going to be the same recovery drink that a dairy or a soy milk product is. But this is where plant-based protein supplements, protein powders, your pea proteins, your rice proteins and things may come in handy here to add to that chocolate oat milk or make up into a smoothie or something like that. Obviously, you do need to be mindful also about iron in diet if you're getting rid of those animal sources of protein because often they're our major sources of iron in our diet as well. It's certainly very well possible. We've talked about this in previous episodes of the podcast around you know getting iron from, from plant foods. But I guess the main thing is that you do need to be conscious of that. If you are going to remove those foods, you do need to be careful about things like vitamin B12 and iron to make sure you are getting those. Now, remember, there hasn't been the life cycle assessments in terms of the environmental impact of some of these newer non-animal protein sources as yet. So we don't know really where they sit in that hierarchy. I think we're pretty confident they're not going to be as impactful as, say, red meat, but maybe slightly more impactful than things like your legumes, your chickpeas and lentils and beans and things. But exactly where they sit in that spectrum, we don't know yet. But I think overall, we can be fairly confident that regardless, they are going to be an improvement over animal protein sources. And again, as both Alba and Damien said in that those last couple of episodes, it's not necessarily that we everyone has to go vegan, but it may be reducing how often we eat animal protein sources and also reducing the portion sizes to only what we actually need, which is sort of that 100 to maybe 150 gram portions rather than the big two, three, 400 gram steaks and chicken breasts and things like that. Mm. Yeah, well said. Good summary. I I did have a bit of a chuckle there when you mentioned about, you know, (coughs) the lentils, it's not realistic for people to kind of you know, sit and have that in a meal. Well, um, this week I accidentally gave uh, my partner the wrong container and so I probably ended up trying to give her that amount and um, I so, got... So this was her lunch, she took that to work for lunch? <laughs> yeah, I got a knock back um, and it was actually her birthday, which is even funnier. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so don't try that um, with your partner's people. Um, <laughs> it's not successful. But, yeah, that just reminded me of that that occasion. Great summary. I think this will be really useful for people. And like you said, it's not that we're saying you need to be completely removing, you know, meat from, from your diet if that's not, you know, what your path is and what you're wanting to do. But it may be just by making some changes and, and tweaks in your diet. 
And so, Al, our next episode is episode 61, and we are going to be answering what question? Yeah, so we didn't have a B episode for this one because we spoke to Damien Hall, obviously, in our last episode, 59B, and and really he talked about, I guess, a lot of these changes, you know, changing from a diet that had a lot of animal-based protein sources to animal uh, to, to plant-based and or non-animal based and what impact that had for him the answer spoiler alert was very little mm-hmm. so we thought there's no point we can speak to someone else we're pretty much going to have the, the same conversation anyway so we're, we're going straight to episode 61 and this is an episode that's kind of had a, an interesting journey i think steph it started out looking at specifically gluten-free diets and do athletes need gluten-free diets there's a lot of sort of myths and misconceptions a lot of people that recommend to endurance athletes that they go gluten-free and we're sort of talking about some of the myths and misconceptions around this but in the end our conversation went in a direction that we actually changed the topic so our topic is now how can i decipher sports nutrition information and we're going to use gluten-free diets as an example, but I think the information in this episode will be much more broader than that. It can be any kind of new dietary trend or fad or recommendation that you see or any new research that you hear talked about in the media or on social media. How can I kind of decipher this to work out? Is it relevant to me? Is it an accurate interpretation of the science? These sorts of things. So we're joined by returning guest, Dr. Dana Lease from the U or well, she's from Canada, but she lives in the US now in California. And she's worked with the Israel Premier Tech Pro Cycling team. She also works in the NBA with the Golden State Warriors, has worked with the Sacramento Kings over there as well, uh, and has done a whole bunch of, of other things. So yeah, looking forward to that chat with Dana and yeah, trying to help people, I guess, unpack stuff that they see online and have a bit of that BS detector that we talked about way back in episode six about why is sports nutrition or or nutrition advice so confusing yeah yeah and we should mention as well that Dana was the main author of those studies that did look at whether athletes do get a performance benefit from going gluten-free when they don't actually have celiac disease so um, that's also why we had gotten her on for this Mm. piece and so I guess just a, a wrap up from us. So a reminder that if you do have a question you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And thank you to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, we really appreciate it. If you do listen on one of these platforms and have 30 seconds to spare, uh, we'd love it if you could leave a quick rating or review and those that leave a review on apple Podcasts will go into a draw to win a copy of our ebook when it's published and just remember also that there's now 60 previous questions that we've already answered so if you're new to the podcast welcome you might like to check out the back catalog to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you most podcast apps only actually show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there going back to November 2020. If you would like to be notified every time that a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you are listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition question, whether it be for their training or for their racing, 
if you've heard it on the podcast, you might like to let them know. Otherwise, we will, as always, love and leave you and see you in a couple of weeks. Will do. See you then.